the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to the Tree at the Back podcast. It's been a while, but we are back for a new season of Premier League action the new era of Irish football, all the fresh faces, new signings, transfer gossip, European arrests, I mean arrivals, and check notes, the destruction of Barcelona at the seams and the imminent departure of Lionel Messi to Manchester City. Jesus, 2020 keeps delivering, doesn't it? I'm joined once again by Phil Green and Keen Cal. Carol, how are you, lads? Hey, lads, how are things? Hi, chaps, good to be back. So it's been a while since we last sat down to record. Um, football had just stopped in the wake of the coronavirus, eventually reconvened, and Liverpool finally ended the 30-year wait for a league title. Stephen Kenny had just become the new Ireland manager, just as Euro 2020 had been postponed until next year. And nearly five months later on from that, he's about to make his debut in the senior dugout this week. We had the Champions League runoff in a mini-tournament, culminating in Bayern Munich, taking the crown over a tearful Neymar. And amongst all that, we've had the will-they-won't-they transfer soap operas involving Thiago to Liverpool, Jadon Sancho to United, and now blowing all of that out of the water this week, Shane Duffy to Celtic. <laughs> we'll be covering much of that over the next few weeks as the new season wings around, but today we'll be chatting to Gavin Cooney of the 42.e about the Ireland national side as the Stephen Kenny ship finally set sail for Bulgaria this Thursday night with every man, woman and child on board in hopes of a better future for Irish football. So, Led, um, how has pandemic life been treating you? Yeah, not too bad. It's um, like I'm not going to call it the new normal because, you know, I want to claw my eyes out and that's been said so often. But uh, I am kind of used to the to the beats of life now and working from home and all the rest of it. But, uh, yeah, it's been a weird year, not just in football, in, in life, but uh, football is just uh, definitely keeping up with it. It's mm. gone off script. Yeah, pretty similar to be quite honest, but I feel like I was made for, for like lockdown life. Like it, it's, it's just, it suits me down to the ground. I don't really have to interact with that many people. I can drink red, red wine, copious amounts of red wine at home. <laughs> and I can just watch loads of football, well, maybe not football, but box sets at least. I, I really enjoyed um, the, the, the lockdown, to be quite honest, lads. I can just imagine you're like um, Wayne Rooney coming out of the caravan in that ad. <laughs> Bush, bushy, bushy bearded. A little bit, yeah. He's probably a better hairline than I have, um, unfortunately. But listen, you know, we take our wins, but we can get them. Um, so we have a couple of quick hitters here before we get to Gavin a little later on. Um, and I mean, we have to start with this whole story surrounding Lionel Messi and his future at Barcelona. Um, it's accelerated so quickly over the past couple of weeks from something that you could easily dismiss as something that will never happen to it now being a very likely scenario of him leaving the club with really Manchester City being the only realistic option at this point. Um, I think in any other year, our transfer 
window at least, you're probably talking about one of the biggest football news stories of the year or of the decade or ever for that matter. Um, the fact that the relationship between Barcelona and Messi, arguably the greatest player of all time, has soured so drastically and so quickly that he is actively forcing his way out. Um, Phil, do you think there's any way back for Messi at this stage? Um, I mean, the narrative now seems to be that this is done, um, his time at Barcelona is over and it's only a matter of time um, of when he goes and how much of an outlay that's going to cost someone like Man City to, to get him there. Yeah, I think it's very difficult for to see him staying at this point. I mean, anything now that result, results in him staying would nearly be a climb down from Messi. Like, even as early as last week when this Bureau of Facts came true uh, and the news broke, like, I kind of thought maybe this is Messi trying to force Bartomeu out. He's trying to get the new regime in early or whatever. But things have changed so much in the last week that it just feels like that's actually not enough now. Like, he's forced the issue so much, trying to leave on a free not turning up for training. And I think his, his dad left Rosario tonight to, to go back to Barcelona. So things seem to be shifting a little bit. It just seems to have moved so fast and so far beyond the point of just a political stroke that I think the only way, the only way this ends is him leaving. Yeah, it's 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 kind of, it, there was an inevitability about it, um, lads, if, if you asked me, for, for a while. Um, it just seemed to be kind of like maybe not to the explosive extent, um, you know, in terms of what's happened and you know how abrupt um, it, it seemed to be. But you, you could see this kind of gradually coming to a head at some point because I mean, more, most people have, have have come to the realization that that Bartomeu has and the Barcelona the Barcelona board have have pretty much wasted Bar or Messi's probably prime or at least last prime years um in terms of the last three seasons even though they've kind of i think they've won two of the last three la liga titles but in terms of like europe um yeah it's been a bit of a disaster i mean like it's kind of an odd one as well because arguably speaking you know in the year liverpool won the champions league it's kind of weird kind of describing the seasons last season can we say last season um Liverpool, Liverpool won the Champions League, and it's kind of like um, Barcelona were so close, so so close to winning that league, and they obviously imploded in in infamous fashion. So it's like they were nearly there, but they were still a kind of unraveling mess at the same time. Um, I think I, I, I heard or read an article um, over the last couple of days where if you look down through their their transfer list for like the last maybe like five years. And it's just been an, a mess, an, an absolute mess, um, in terms in terms of who they've bought and, and how much for. So, um, yeah, uh, I suppose again, it's just pure inevitable to, to what's happened. Obviously, it looks like um, we kind of discussed it like very very briefly just off off record, but it looks like he is going to go. And you know, Man City seem to be in in pole position. To be honest, I was genuinely of the thought that Barcelona and Messi are so intertwined that he's yeah. going to be a lifer pretty much, even more so than, say, someone like Xavi or Iniesta who left uh, towards the ends of their careers. I felt that Messi, it's because he's still so good and because he's still so expensive and Barcelona, that that relationship was going to continue on to 
either some sort of coaching role or being an ambassador or probably a director on the board. I thought that that was the kind of the natural uh, step forward for him. And the fact that we've gotten to this point, um, and like you said, uh, Keane, the Liverpool result last year, and I kind of I often think of the the gif. Um, of the Liverpool, I think, I'm not sure if he was a fan or a ball by running by Messi as he kind of forlornly looks at his toes and gives him the two fingers. Um, I think that's how we've been kind of thinking about Messi for the past couple of years, that no matter what he does, this Barcelona side around him is just in capitulation mode in, in every sense of the word. I mean, the signings, like you said, have been disastrous. They've been expensive. Um, I mean, it, it looks like they've done it again now with um, Merlin Pjanic's quotes today um, saying that he only joined Barcelona to play with Messi um, oh, and he's, he's, he's likely not going to be playing with Messi and at mm. 30 years of age, you'd wonder how much of an impact he's going to have. Um, the next thing Can I, I throw think... this out there, lads? Can I throw this out there? If Messi does go, is it salvageable? Is it is it a good thing in the long run for Barcelona? I think he Messi presented such a unique problem for Barca because he was still good enough to be effective for the next three years, more than effective at the top end of the European game. But basically, none of the rest of the team were. So there needed to be a massive rebuilding job done. But Messi was in win now mode. So Pjanic, right, was partly signed to balance the books this year because they needed to to get money in the door from selling or to sell Bartar Mello in the opposite direction to Juve. But he was also signed because he's in this prime and can play in a way that suits Messi and helps Messi. But it didn't help the rest of the team. So Frankie De Jong is waiting for Busquets to shuffle off. Ansu Fati is, and Rui uh, Puge are waiting to come in and make this team their own. Not to the same level as Messi was able to, but still good young players. Uh, but young players aren't what Messi needs. So arguably, in three or four years, Barca come out of this quite well with a hundred million off their wage bill every year, and a young core of La Mesa graduates who are kind of reinvigorating the Barcelona way, which has kind of lost its way. But then you weigh that up against getting rid of probably the best player ever, forcing him out of the club, and ruining your legacy as a. Barcelona president so it's a mess but mm-hmm. it could work in three or four years the immediate term looks very messy I mean like what's their team next year what's it look like I think um, to answer your question Keen, I'd, I'd say a lot of people um, around Barcelona and not just around Bartomeu would probably say quietly um, in an empty room that it would be good long term for Barcelona to get rid of him now just because of the financial burden that he places on the club. Obviously, he's the greatest player of all time and he's done so much for the club. But in, if you're in such a rebuild stage um, and feel real off some of the players there that are waiting to come through, and Messi, like he doesn't defend anymore. I mean, how difficult is it going to be for Ronald Coleman or whoever, if he lasts six months, the next coach to come in and basically work with 10 players in their structure in terms of defending? Mm-hmm. Um so you do you would wonder, is there a lot of people around Barcelona, around the club, thinking quietly to themselves that, you know, this could be um, a blessing in the long term? Yeah, I, I mean, like it, it's 
it's more kind of looking at Barcelona and thinking, you know, without Messi, actually with Messi, it's like, how do you rebuild around Messi? Now, I'm not saying, like, that sounds like a stupid question. It's it's kind of like, well, you know, it's Lionel Messi. He's still only 32 or 33. He's like two, three good years left in him at least. So it's like, you know, it sounds like a stupid question, but it's like, this has been the problem for Barcelona for like maybe four or five years since really Neymar left. Um, and like a lot of players started to get a little bit older, like Rakitic and Busquets and those guys. So it's kind of like, you know, I, 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 obviously, you know, the, the problem, the problem is obviously it could be like two and three pronged. It's like, you know, you've got all these guys who are probably well past their prime. And then you've got Messi, who is obviously swallowing huge swathes of, of Barcelona's, you know, financial power, but also... You know, it's like how do you build that attack around him? And and like as Phil mentioned as well, like you know, Ansu Fadi and and um, Rui Pig and, and these guys coming through. It's like, God, do you, do you remember when um, Delafeu came through at Barcelona and he looked absolutely incredible? But like, I guarantee you, Messi hated him because he uh. never he never really. I don't know if you ever watched you know a lot of games when when Delafeu played alongside him and he looked electric, but his decision making was quite poor and. Messi just used to like really kind of like scowl at him a lot, and I often wonder, you know, is is his presence not great for younger players coming through because they're not at the level that Messi anywhere near the level that Messi was when he came through, and it's just like it's look, I'm just throwing that out there. It's kind of like it it, it is all food for thought, and it's kind of like you know you'll have probably listeners going, what the hell is he talking about? Like you know Lionel Messi is the greatest player of all time, and you know you could still build a side around him, but I don't know if it is as simple as that. Indeed, and uh, if the transfer does go ahead um, to Manchester City or whoever, you're kind of wondering then what sort of creative accounting um, they'll be trying to do to get around FFP and CAS and all that after um, mm. the past couple of months. And that's a storyline I'm sure will be um, moving back to as the weeks go on. Um, another piece of transfer news that kind of caught a lot of people off guard was Matt Doherty's move from Wolves to Spurs. Um there's a couple of points. Firstly, the fact that we now have an Irish international being bought by a club of Spurs' calibre, um, which isn't something we've generally been used to over the past couple of years. Um, secondly, the fee, £15 million or so, which Spurs paid um, yeah, relative pittance, really, for a Premier League established player um, in this day and age. Um, and then also the fact that a portion of that will be going to the Bohemians um, and set them up potentially for, for years to come. Um, Keen, what did you make of the move for Doherty? Um, has the All or Nothing series on Amazon given any insight into yeah. into how he might get on with Jose? I think uh, I think it does to a certain extent. I was a little bit kind of uh, perturbed is not the is not the right word, but I was a little bit oh why is he doing that? Because Wolves to a certain extent. Um, I know I know Spurs finished above Wolves, but it was incredibly tight. Um, I think did they or did Wolves finish fifth? No, Spurs finished ahead of them, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Spurs. I think Spurs finished ahead of them. Um, I, you know, so it was like it was a bit of a oh, I'm not too sure, and obviously the whole Mourinho thing and and the non-attacking football end. But yeah, having watched the first three episodes of All or Nothing, um, Mourinho's actually it, it's a, it's a right. It's a, it's a bit of a you know watered down it's not exactly a, a fly in the wall documentary but it is entertaining it does give you an insight 
into like how Mourinho deals with players and interacts with them, um, and and into his tactics a little bit. Um, and there is like the scene in it where he's like he's encouraging. They're like they're two on down at half time, and Mourinho was like, right, we've got to switch this up. And he, he's getting into Aurier, and he's saying Aurier, like you need to get forward and you know get get wide and high um, on the right hand side. And obviously, like that's what what Doherty is gonna love to do. So it really it depends, guys. Like you, you know, it's like Mourinho's leopard never never changes spots and all that, and. You know, will Mourinho kind of suddenly turn into this attacking manager? Probably not. Um, and then you've also got the, the 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 whole thing of the issue of like, does Doherty is Doherty way better in, in a in a five as a as a right wing back rather than um, uh, an orthodox right right fullback? Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he gets on. Look, do you know what's do you know what's funny about Doherty? I'm not one of those people who is an absolutely massive fan of him, um, which kind of flies in the face of the fact that, you know, he's been relatively excellent for Wolves for, for a number of seasons now, but I'm, I haven't been overly impressed when he's when he's played um, for Ireland, and I, I, that's probably a little bit reductive because, you know, it's not as if we Ireland have been playing an expansive game of football for the last few years, but um, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm very very intrigued to see how he gets on at Wolves. Very intrigued, and obviously like delighted for Bohemians to get that windfall, um, considering that they're that, you know Keith Long is working off a, um, a semi-professional budget. So that's all you know all power to them for that. Yeah, like initially I suppose it looks like a bit of a weird one, nearly on all parts, because like you wonder why Wolves are happy to sell somebody who is a major part of their team to a pretty direct rival, um. You wonder why it's only 15 million when he's a prime age footballer and the market has been set for fullbacks this transfer window at 50 million by Chelsea buying Chilwell. Not saying he's worth 50 million, but you know what I mean? He's, the, the gap between them is that big. Phil, he's only got a year left, though, isn't it? Okay. I think he's only got a year left, and also I mean, okay. I, I have seen the I have seen the Chilwell comparison, but I think Chilwell's 23. And, yeah, and um, Doherty's twenty eight, so there is that yeah. to consider. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. Re- I didn't realize the contract. That makes that makes more sense. Um, like from Doherty's point of view, completely understand the move. Like, if you ask me between Wolves and Spurs, who's going to finish higher next season? I don't know. But if you ask me over the next five, who's going to finish ahead of the other one more regularly? I'd probably say Spurs just because of that institutional size. But I completely agree with Keen. Um, like in terms of his, his physical makeup and stuff you can see why Jose would like him and um, that whole Wolves side actually is very suited to Jose like strong physical mm. direct that's like it's it, and like Espirio Santo was a sub keeper under Mourinho yeah, at Porto mm. so um, like there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of comparison there between them and I think Doherty will fit in quite well Jose uh, I don't think takes anyone under six foot Doherty's bang on six foot I think he'll he'll fit in well there he'll give it a crack He's got more of a chance, I think, of playing Champions League football with Spurs than Wolves, just because I don't know how much longer that Wolves team is going to last together. And um, when think, like if Troy has another season like that, he'll probably go. Jimenez, there's rumours about him and Juve and stuff. So I think he's probably is making a step up in the longer term for the next kind of three or four years of his career. And it probably was a case in there or never for him. I mean, like he's 28, so he's not old. But if he took another four years with Wolves, that's kind of the last big contract you'll get. And um, so, like, I think it's going to be a good thing 
for the Irish team that somebody like Doherty is going into a setup like Spurs. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. Keen, I have a feeling we'll be talking about this um, in greater detail soon, but I'd be interested to get your thoughts quickly um, on Dundalk, who have been making headlines really for the wrong reasons lately. Um, with Vinnie Pert leaving, the poor form since football resumed, the defeat in Slovenia, which was a huge blow, um, and more worryingly really the, the stories behind the scenes of their US ownership peak six, um, interfering with squad selections and squad decisions and stories about um, trying to install phones in the dugout and that sort of yeah. thing. Well, what's the mood like um, at the moment surrounding the club? Uh, amongst the fans, yep. really, more than anything. Yeah, well, Kev, you, you, you mentioned the word details there. Like, I, I don't think you could get any more detailed than James Rogers' piece, um, I think, on his own blog, um, covering the entire episode. And that was actually before um, uh, Filippo's... Um, Giovignoli's um, appointment and then obviously Dan um, McDonald's piece in the Independent there um, over the weekend so I mean like it was like quite incredible to be quite honest like it, it, it's 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 been an absolute implosion um, in terms of what's happened and I mean like you know the hardcore supporters are just kind of like completely forlorn with, with, with what's going on some of them have tried to kind of put a brave face on it and go look you know, I think I, I don't know if you read um, Ruri um, Ruri Omoroku's piece, um, Ruri Murphy. You'll know him as Rubot maybe on um, on Twitter, where he kind of goes, "Look, the club will be there, you know, past peak six, um, you know, and it'll be there for another hundred years and blah 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 blah." You know, this is kind of like the deepest darkest tr- trench it's been in for at least the last maybe eight, seven, eight years. But um, like Dundalk are not really. You know, they're, no, they're no strangers to, to absolutely cataclysmically bad decisions at the club. Um, and, and I mean, like, this is just another iteration of it in reality. Um, it's just it's just happening in, in the... Like, basically, you've got, like, these ultra-capitalists. Um, I'm trying to mind my words here in that, like, you know, obviously, that they, they're like a... They're a, an investment group. Um, and in reality, I don't know if they care all that much about Dundalk as a community. I mean, it's an investment for them. Um, and the minute that they feel like this isn't going to, to work, um, they're going to pull the plug. And I don't know where that leaves Dundalk in terms of budgets um, and what what budgets they're, they're currently working off. Because obviously, like Peak Six, you know, the, Matt Hulsizer and, and his guys, they're, they're like billionaires. Um, so... And obviously, like they see Dundalk, I would assume, as, as very, very, you know, as a very small priority in, in like the greater scheme of, of Peak Six. So, um, yeah, th- there is incredible worry um, among among the fan base. Um, I know there was like 2 0 win over Cove Ramblers there at the weekend um, under the new Italian guy, but obviously, like, if Matt Holtzizer, um, the father of, oh, sorry, Bill Holtzizer, father of Matt Holzheiser and the owner so the, the, his dad is now the, the, the CEO of the club the chairman of the club now he's kind of the one sort of that's like hands on and he has like limited limited experience of soccer so much so that he floated the idea of of um, the goalkeeper um, Gary Rogers um, t- 
taking the corners because he had the true strike of a ball. Um, so I mean, like that just gives you an indication of, of of what was what was happening inside, like the boardroom and the management structure of the club. So, like, yeah, how could you not be worried? <laughs> frankly speaking, um, yeah, it's been an absolute disaster. It's, it's been really sad to see it kind of like slowly, slowly disintegrate, um, especially in the factions among the club, and it's not just like the players as well. Um, it, it's it's known within the club that the players obviously weren't really really happy with with um, Vinnie Perth, um, which was surprising to hear. Like as an outsider, it was surprising to hear. But um, I mean, if you were probably closer to the coal face, you would have heard a lot more stories. So um, yeah, yeah, it's been really really sad. I don't know, kind of. I mean, this is League of Ireland football, lads. You know yourself. Like these kind of things, like are just can be pretty mad at, at the best of times. So be interested to kind of. Get your take on it coming from like the outsiders, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose from my point of view, um, not paying as close attention to it, obviously, as you, Keen, and not being mm-hmm. anywhere near invested, it kind of took me a small bit by surprise. Like, obviously, you can see like the way the results were trending weren't wasn't overly positive, but the sheer level of meddling going on in the background, like reading that piece that, that you mentioned, uh, uh, was like jaw dropping. And like even the, the the Joshua Gat thing, it was a small thing, but they had a piece in the Athletic talking to him about how the chairman just invited him over because he read his story and liked he liked the story, he thought it was inspiring, nothing to do with a football decision. That felt weird in isolation, but now you see it as part of a pattern. You're like, how has it actually been allowed that a team that looked like it had everything going for it has had like serious funding uh, boost in terms of the Europa League stuff as well as having this investment firm over them. And they've kind of squandered that position through bad governance and bad management. And they're now like, I, I had the impression of them as a quite well-run club and I could not have been further wrong. We're joined by Gavin Cooney of the 42.e to talk about the Republic of Ireland, now firmly in the era of Stephen Kinney. Thanks for popping on this evening, Gav. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so it feels like an age, really, since John Delaney announced that bizarre um, succession plan from Mick McCarthy to Stephen Kinney, um, midfield greater by the John Delaney saga that intervened in the middle of all that, um, not to mention, obviously, the events of the last seven or eight months and the postponement of Euro 2020. Um, Gavin, I realise pressers might be a little bit more distant than usual and access around the team is probably limited at the moment, but how would you gauge the mood in the camp um, in Kenny's first week with the players? Yeah, weirdly enough, I haven't actually been out there yet. So we were meant to, we were we got 15 minutes by the side of training on Sunday and Tuesday and I uh, I unfortunately was unable to go both days, but I did the press conferences, obviously. It's the usual thing, you know, players talking about new manager, what he wants to get across, and, and things are pretty positive, and the, the mood is positive around the camp and so on. Um, but they're not giving too much away either. I mean, I think there is a little bit of expectation management uh, going on on behalf of the players, <laughs> if not Stephen Kenny. Like Darren Randolph was, was telling us over uh, over a Zoom call yesterday uh, that we won't be taking stupid risks. I know people... Are expecting to play like Barcelona, Man City. It won't quite, uh, won't be quite like that. Um, and it will be evolution rather than evolution, uh, revolution, should I say? 
he said that there'll be a subtle change uh, to what people are used to seeing, but nothing too revolutionary uh, already, which is unsurprising given like what they've got two training sessions at Abbottstown um, or they had two training sessions at Abbottstown before they flew out to Bulgaria today. So, um, yeah, no, but it's all good. I mean, it's, it's great. And I'm sure you guys will agree. It's great to have some actual football mm. to look forward to. I mean, it feels like we've been talking about what Stephen Kenny can bring uh, and what to expect for two years now. And, God knows, uh, we've had enough of uh, of FAI sideshow as well. So it's great to uh, it's great to have some football to look forward to. Indeed, and like you said, I mean, in terms of the squad itself, it's been subject to so much debate um, since the moment Kenny took over, especially um, last April, um, and with the cohort of young players impressing for the under twenty ones and throughout the Premier League and the Championship. Um, in the end, I think he kind of tried to strike a balance of experience and fresh faces um, and probably got it right, really, on reflection um, amongst the potential debutants are Jason Malumbi, who feels like the most equipped to come in and stay in the squad for many years to come, I would say. Um, Adam Ida of Norwich, Darrow Shea kind of came in later on, who was really impressive for West Brom and getting promoted last season. Um, Gavin, what kind of chord do you think Kenny has struck here with his inaugural squad? Yeah, I mean, there's, I th- there was a misconception out there, I think, that Kenny, because he, play- he coached under-21s before and then because he, he believes in, in, in the promise of the young players in the Irish squad at the moment, that he would immediately drop five or six of them into his starting team. He never gave that impression. As soon as he took the senior job, he talked more about unlocking the potential of the players that are already de- there, particularly Robbie Brady and Jeff Hendrick, and to a lesser extent, Matt Doherty and John Egan. So I'm not surprised by the squad he's picked, and I don't know of the of the young players. I don't think too many of them, I could be wrong, of course, but I don't think too many of them will, will start in Bulgaria on Thursday. You mentioned Balumbi might have the best chance of coming in and establishing himself. I think he definitely he definitely does have a chance, obviously, but I don't expect him to start Um Adam Idem and Aaron Connolly maybe might break into the attacking ranks. But again, I don't expect any of these guys to start. One player that missed out um, and probably wasn't shy in letting his feelings known was Michael Obafemi. Um, and I must admit, when I first saw the squad, I didn't feel too aggrieved at his exclusion. Aside from probably Adam Ida, who clearly has a very different skill set. And, and Kenny, in fairness, was fairly outright in explaining the decision. Um I think it would be easy to dismiss this as a nodding story, but there's been a couple of tidbits now around Southampton boss Ralph Hassenhuttle uh, about Obafemi's nature, kind of, Kevin. Is this simply a nodding story of a player who doesn't fit into Kenny's system and that's that? Or is this a message from Kenny to say, you know, come on, get your act together? Well, the universe dictates, Kev, that all Ireland squad announcements are dominated by the player that's not there. uh, (laughs) You know, it's the Stephen Ireland slash Andy Reid slash possibly Roy Keane complex as well. I mean, I have to say, when I was looking through the squad when it was first announced, I kind of went, oh, Obafemi's not there. I wasn't particularly outraged. Obviously, Obafemi was. He tweeted, (laughs) pretty stupidly, to be honest, disgrace, and then decided, actually, that is a little bit much, so... It got rid of it and put in an interesting with a couple of puzzled emojis just so uh, we knew the subtext. And he did drop it right before we went in to talk to Stephen Kenny. So maybe it was slightly more calculated than, uh, than it may have appeared in the first time. Like, see, Kenny has been very clear as to why Ke- uh, Femi is not in the squad. Mm. Uh, he says, you know, he, he, he rates his potential. He says Femi is a really good lad and got 
got bags of talent and can go on to be an Irish international for for a long time. But says that at Southampton he plays primarily in a front two, whereas Ireland won't play that way. They'll play with a front three or a front one with two wide forwards, however you want to interpret it. And he said that Obafemi has to learn a little bit more tactically as to how to play that role. Uh, I think that's fair enough. Now, you know, Kenny didn't actually tell Obafemi this directly. So Kenny, when he took the job uh, back in April, he spent a week uh, of the lockdown ringing all of the players that had been in Mick McCarthy's squad. So I think that ran to 34 players or something uh, and spent uh, spent a little, what, between, I think, between like 15 minutes and, and 35 minutes chatting to them on Zoom. Obviously, Abafemi wasn't on this list because he never actually played under McCarthy. He made his one senior appearance under Martin O'Neill in the Nations League. So there was no conversation with Abafemi. So maybe he could have picked up the phone and explained um, explained that to Abafemi. But like on the face of it, like it's not, it's no bad thing that Abafemi can, in theory, go into the under-21s under Jim Crawford and play in a system, in the system that will go, that he would be playing in in the senior team, you know, the idea is that those systems will be pretty closely aligned and that's a good place to go and learn the make those tactical improvements that Kenny needs to see from him uh, to be in the first team. Now, unfortunately, Obafemi hasn't actually turned up for the under 21 training camp that's on at the moment in Belfast because he's wanted for the Southampton first team, uh, which, you know, Crawford has been totally fine with. He says, yeah, look, that's it's better for us in the long run or even the medium term coming up to that qualifier against Italy that Obafemi is involved in the Southampton first team. But I mean, it, uh, it obviously overshadowed it a little bit, but uh, <laughs> I'm in no way ready to upgrade this to the status of Saga. <laughs> Gavin, um, Keen here. I just wanted to, you kind of, you, you raised an interesting kind of point there on, on how Kenny was kind of always likely to bring in the, or at least favour the senior internationals and kind of, you know, eke a bit more out of them. Um, Shane Long, so when Kenny when Kenny was at um, at Dundalk, obviously he kind of he went between Hoban and a, you know a striker um, focal point of Hoban or McMillan, and like I would put Shane Long in that bracket in terms of you know an abrasive, mobile um, kind of hold up player. Do you think Shane Long Shane Long has a big future um, under Kenny? I think Reasonably he's right. I think I think. After, if not this set of internationals, I think at some point over the next three months under Kenny, we will say, ah, oh, Shane Long, remember him? Like, the weird thing about Long is that he didn't he didn't play under McCarthy at all last year. I like, there's some, like, what's grabbed the headlines is the fact that James McCarthy is back in because he hasn't played in nearly four years. But, like, Shane Long hasn't played for Ireland since Martin O'Neill was the manager, as far as I'm aware. Like, Long's, I often find Long's hold-up play isn't actually that great sometimes. Uh, but mm. I think he was... His Irish career, I think, has definitely been affected by... He's just totally uh, lost confidence for a very, very long period of time. I think it began to be restored under Ralph Hasenhuttle, actually, um, from last year onwards. Hasenhuttle was, spoke really well of Long, and I think he signed a new contract at Southampton as well. So I think, like, Kenny has... And you'll know this well, Key, like Kenny has always been great at um, reinvigorating players who've lost their way and lost confidence. Now, that Absolutely. usually... Usually players that come back a little bit disillusioned from Britain, you know, that's how he's built superb League of Ireland teams centered around players who lost their passion for football, having um, having endured a tough time in Britain. And like you can easily see Shane Long fall into that category. Like, I mean, what Kenny will do will tell Long, this is what you're good at and this is what we'll have you doing, you know. And one of the uh, one of the issues for the Irish striker role and that Long would have uh, toiled painfully under this under O'Neill 
is just how isolated they are in the pitch. You know, they literally just boot the ball long and Shane Long had to had to chase it into the channels and plough the loneliest furrow that the Aviva Stadium has ever seen. Like Kenny has already spoken about the fact that when Ireland played a four three three under McCarthy, that the two wide players up front were way too wide. You know, that James McLean was out wide left and then Callum Robinson would play wide right and he'd have choke on his boots, which is which is crazy and it doesn't like it still isolates the strikers. So Long will have more players closer to him and he will get a chance to turn and actually face the opposition goal, which is something he didn't really do very often in the dog days under O'Neill. So I think I like Long should be invigorated by the fact that Kenny Kenny is now the manager. Gav's uh, Phil here. Um, understandably, like this week has been dominated by like Kenny's quotes about getting uh, Ireland playing more football and revolutionising their style of play. But these two Nations League games are the only two games that he has to work with the squad before next month's massive Euro- European qualifier and um, or European playoff rather. How important is it that they actually hit the ground running in these two games and like bring out results that lay the groundwork for next month? I think it's probably important. Is it important? Yeah, I like. I mean, players would want to win games. It give, it just gives everyone um, confidence that they're doing the right thing, I guess. But I mean, you know, if if we don't blow these team, Bulgaria and Finland away, I don't think it's um, it's a necessarily bad thing. Just once that they can, once we can pick out a few positives and say, well, this is what we're trying to do. You know, this is the we've been talking so much about identity. If they can show, if they can make some kind of progress and show some signs of progress, that would be a very good thing. Obviously, you want to win the games because. You know, it won't, while everyone's excited about Kenny, it won't take long for certain elements of the media to say, hang on, this guy, uh, this guy is in over his head to, like, Jason McAteer has already led the, uh, led the court, uh, led the charity as a solo singer on at the moment, but it could become a chorus pretty quickly. So from that point of view, maybe you think it, it would be ideal to hit the ground running here. I, to be honest, I don't know if Kenny will be overly bothered with that uh, media commentary. I think he's a lot more headstrong uh, and will be a lot more indifferent to this stuff than uh, than some people think um but look you obviously want to uh, you want to go and make make a good start but if we can see some kind of plan uh, and some kind of change and some kind of pattern particularly in attack i mean the problem is if you go back what i found utterly exasperating and i think you guys will agree under martin o'neill was when o'neill would moan about the fact well look i inherited an older robbie Keane than i thought than you know i could have when we went, you know, whatever, three years without scoring a single goal under Martin O'Neill or whatever it was. Uh, but he, uh, the problem was, if you gave any of the games even a cursory look, we could have had a, like a 24-year-old Pele in the box and he still wouldn't have scored because we weren't creating any chances. So Kenny has Kenny has said, like, has essentially said that. He's, he's diagnosed the problem pretty well. The fact that, like, you know, we didn't really, Dave McGulder didn't really miss a chance in the last qualifying campaign. He just hardly got any. So I think if we can, you know, if we can just, if we can look back on Sunday night and say, well, look, we carved out X amount of genuine goal scoring opportunities from play. Honestly, I think, I know <laughs> we're starting from a meager base, but I think that is enough to bring into Slovakia. Um, Kevin, there's been a couple of interesting um, transfers involving. Irish defenders this week just before um, we came on the call here is confirmed that Duffy um, has joined Celtic which seems like a pretty decent transfer for all parties um, Matt Doherty has joined Spurs and and myself Keen and Phil were talking about it a little earlier and it, we've kind of s- sunk back into a Doherty versus Coleman debate again um, and I mean 
be up to Stephen Kenny at the end of the day. But surely it's 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 Doherty's job at the moment, and um, considering how well he has performed, and how often Kenny has kind of made the point that I think he only has eight or nine caps for Ireland, and that, that's been a bit of a travesty, really, when you look back on, on how good he has been. Yeah. I guess there is a small chance that we'll see Doherty play ahead of Coleman in the same team. I wouldn't 100% rule it out, but uh, I, ultimately, I probably do think it's it's a um, it's an either or call. Like Seamus Coleman is the captain still, by the way. Like Kenny did confirm that back in April. Like he's keeping Seamus Coleman as the Irish captain. So like he's still like Coleman is still very well thought of, and it's not as if Coleman is totally out of form. Like he played, he's done well, Coleman, particularly since the restart. I mean, he was man of the match in a in a Merseyside derby up against Sadio Mane. So like. Coleman is far from on the scrap heap and he will always, you know, when Coleman has to perform for Ireland, he always has and he likely will continue to for the next couple of years. Uh, but that said, I do I do think Doherty should start, yeah. Um, and I'm not, a hun- I, I don't have any kind of insider knowledge of this or anything because we haven't got a hint, well, I haven't got a hint either way anyway. But um, I think it probably will be Doherty that will get the jersey uh, right back on Thursday. Interesting. And what do you make of the transfer? Um, kind of caught a lot of people off guard. Um, on one hand, you have Spurs, and it, we're not really accustomed to seeing Irish internationals join um, clubs of Spurs' calibre. Um, I mean, we very nearly had um, Jeff Henry going to AC Milan, and, and he was kind of a free agent for, for a couple of weeks longer than he probably would have expected. But does, do you see Doherty as, as a positive move to Spurs? I mean, considering Wolves have been relatively under under toes for the last couple of seasons. Yeah, it's just a pity, isn't it, that Jeff Henry could have made his debut at Tala after all that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. It? it did kind of slightly catch me unawares, but I guess uh, <laughs> what's good for George Mendes is good for uh, Matt Doherty and Jose Mourinho and Tottenham and uh, Nuno and Wolves and Valencia, who are now going to sign a replacement. Um yeah, I mean, it's look, it's a good move for him. I think he's been 10 years at Wolves. He's been a brilliant player for them. Uh, and Nuno has been an outstanding coach for Doherty. Like, I mean, Doherty's a great player, but Nuno's made him a better player through, you know, very very good coaching and a very defined style of play and very defined system of play. Uh, but I think it's, it's a very interesting move for Doherty. I don't know, you know, I don't, I'm not accustomed to cheering on Jose Mourinho's sides, but I do obviously hope they do well now that they've Doherty in the team. And what's particularly interesting just from an Irish point of view is, when we were talking to Stephen Kenny on his unveiling in April, uh, he started talking about tactics and what he sees in the modern game. And he managed to see something that I, no one else in the media had pointed out, is the fact that Jose Mourinho has made some tactical forward, forward steps tactically as Tottenham manager. He was talking about the positioning of the fullback, and he said Serge Aurier at right back was pushed way further on than the Spurs left back. So this is this is the thing that Kenny's been talking about for a while now. Is like in our football culture, we always associate the fullbacks as essentially mirrors of each other. So we always uh, suspect that expect them to you know have the same starting position without the ball and with the ball. Whereas he's talked about and he saw this with the Brazil team that beat the Irish under twenty ones in the Toulon tournament last year. That their right back plays way further up the right flank than their left back does. And he's making the point that Aurier has done the same for Tottenham, that at times Aurier was almost level with Harry Kane. He was pushed on so far. So if Doherty can avail of that coaching, that will only further strengthen his uh, his prospects for Ireland. As regards like how things will go for Tottenham, I've no idea. Like I mean, Mourinho is hugely underwhelming and has been for 
<laughs> I mean, years at this point. Uh, but I hope it's a good move for him. Like, I mean, you know, it's obviously a good move for Doherty. You know, um, change of scenery, a major uh, and a ma- and a major transfer, a major transfer fee to go with it. And but you wonder, like, are Tottenham really that much better a team than Wolves? I mean, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that they are, and the league table didn't say so last year. But uh, uh, ultimately, it's a good move if uh, if it means nothing else other than Bohemians getting getting a fair old uh, wad of cash. You've gotten away for nearly half an hour now without us actually bringing up uh, the FBI and governance. <laughs> oh boy. We are going to touch on it just briefly. Uh, we don't want to put anyone to sleep and uh, we know that you more than anyone is probably sick of going around in circles on this, but uh, just to bring people up to speed who mightn't somehow be aware of it, the FAI EGM happened on Monday night and uh, all the necessary reforms were voted through that allows them to draw down the government funding and essentially keep them in business. But the main story coming out of it was questions around Roy Barrett's appointment as the uh, independent chairman of the FAI because it's come to light that he was um, he was put forward for the role by the chairman of Bank of Ireland uh, who in turn then Roy, Bar- Roy Barrett had to go and negotiate with on the terms of the debt uh, for the FAI. Um, do you think uh, that this story, which has got a lot of attention in the last 24 hours, do you think the act itself is going to be enough to put pressure on Barrett or is the pressure more so the fact that people like Larry Bass and even the interim CEO, Gary Owens, weren't oh, fulsome in their support of Roy Barrett? Do you think the internal faction fighting is more of a problem than the actual act, or do you think there's going to be serious public and political pressure on Barrett coming out of this? Uh, I, well, I, I certainly... Uh, there's no backbiting between Gary Owens and Roy Barrett. They're very much... Um they're very much on the same on the same wavelength, uh, but it's interesting. Yeah, there is there is considerable considerable there is growing pressure on Roy Barrett now among the membership. You know, for years we've been very critical of the FAI membership of council members for sitting on their hands uh, and only um, lifting them to applaud John Delaney. You know, for two year for too long it was it was too quiet. Uh, those uh, mute days are over, and as you see, like Larry Bass was very critical of of Roy Barrett. He's called, he called for him to resign. Uh, Andrew Doyle, also very critical of Barrett. And just talking to pe- uh, people on council and people voting at the EGM last night, there is more of a, you know, Barrett, while his CV and was very impressive and really wowed people at the beginning in January, the more they hear from him, the more they are unimpressed um, because there are legitimate questions uh, to answer over the processes uh, by which he was appointed, by which the MOU was signed, by which he was recommended to this job. And the fact that they haven't really been adequately dealt with. I mean, like Roy Barrett is essentially saying nothing to see here, folks. You know, that there's no potential conflict of interest. But I mean, he may not think that, but everyone else thinks that there is. And, you know, he's dealing with he's got um, he's got a much uh, tighter margin for error at the top of the FAI, given all that we know as to what went on and the failures of corporate governance over the last few years. I asked him last night, did he feel he was, his position as independent chairperson, remain tenable with the members, and he said, it's not for me to say. So, I mean, I don't know. Basically, there is increasing pressure on him. I mean, we went to that council meeting at the Red Cow uh, Hotel, what, three weeks ago, it feels like, nine months ago, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we thought, are we ready for another kind of light, night of the long knives here? But, he, you know, he diffused the situation. He's a pretty calm, calm and collected customer when he's put under pressure like that. You know, he can deal with things in a very in a very what what seems like a very professional manner uh but there is growing uh, there is growing unease among the rank and file i think the rank and file are also aware that 
they do have a duty to call stuff out. Uh, I think that has been made very forcefully in the media over the last two years or so. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I mean, all is certainly not rosy. And I think you're right to say that it, it has overshadowed what should have been a good night for the FAI last night, who have once again managed to snatch administrative shambles from the jaws of, I guess, a kind of moral victory. Gavin, just just to finish off on that point, like, so we know that there's a conflict of interest. Well, essentially, there's a conflict of interest there in terms of Roy Bauer being the pick of the creditor, right? But what exactly is, for a complete simpleton, what exactly is the conflict of interest? See, it's difficult to know and it's difficult to say because you don't want to get into the territory of making claims yeah, that, yeah. that we can yeah. substantiate. I think it's, I mean, we don't know enough about what was said. I mean, there is, it was, you know, at the EGM meeting last night, Mick Wallace made the point that, uh, like, the FAI didn't secure a debt write-down on the, on the deal with Bank of Ireland. And Larry Bass has been, has been wondering whether the deal is the best possible deal that we that the FAI could have got, given there was no uh, other banking partners approach, there was no cost-benefit analysis run on, on the agreement that was struck. So we don't know exactly what a potential conflict of interest is because we haven't been told. We don't know enough about the details of how the deal was signed. But I think it, it comes more broadly to a perception. If you, uh, I'll, just, I'll, I'll go through the facts as, as Roy Barrett uh, pointed them out, just for clarity last night that he did not apply for the position of independent chairperson of the FAI. He was recommended to recruiters, the recruiters who were appointing or to to recommend the chairperson to the FAI. He was recommended to them by Patrick Kennedy, who's the chairperson of the Bank of Ireland, who, as we say, were the FAI's main creditor. Um, He says that he didn't speak to Kennedy before that happened about the FAI. He spoke to him briefly that night uh, just to, you know, to kind of acknowledge the fact that he had been recommended for the role by by Kennedy and has not spoken to him about the FAI since. He says there's no conflict of interest. But, I mean, people out there will perceive it as a conflict of interest. I mean, why? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're like the person who has led the negotiation with the principal creditor was uh, recommended to that position by the chairperson of said principal creditor. It's not a particularly, on the face of it, it's not a particularly... Uh, trans- particularly normal way of doing business. I know that he said uh, that Roy Barrett says it is. I think the broader perception would certainly argue that Roy Barrett says I don't understand what the problem here. This is kind of like how the world works. This is just one guy recommending another guy to a headhunter uh, in a private capacity. Uh, but and look, maybe there was no conflict of interest in how it played out. But we're always we're judging the FBI against the against very high stand the high standards needed of transparency and good corporate governance because of what went on before. And this, along with an, a, a past series um, of issues, as raised by Larry Bass, I mean, on the Finance Committee, hasn't met. They've asked repeatedly for uh, through more granular details of this loan agreement and other financial uh, details, and they haven't yet been furnished. So when you when they all package together, the perception is not good. And, uh, and I think it is, the, it is the opinion of much of the membership that the FEI hierarchy have not done enough uh, to clear up that perception. I'd just like to clarify that the uh, complete simpleton I was referring to was myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the complete simpleton, by the way, was also me la- at about eight o'clock last night before that press conference, frantically googling <laughs> like haircuts and dead write downs and MOUs. And- <laughs> I am I, tr- very much looking forward to, and uh, we're facing it. What day is it? Tuesday. We're facing into a week where I'll get to talk mostly about football, and I cannot bloody wait. <laughs>
Brilliant stuff. So in terms of um, matters on the pitch, Ireland are back in action on Thursday night um, in Bulgaria at 7.45. I believe that's on Sky Sports. Um, and then Finland arrive at the rather odd time of 5pm next Sunday evening, both in the Nations League. Um, and then next month, all eyes will be on Bratislava for the Euro 2020-21 qualifier with Slovakia. Um, Gavin, before you go... How frustrating is this for AC Milan to be coming to town and no fans allowed in to see it? Well, it's understandable. It's also bloody cruel, on oh my word. I mean, it's the biggest, the biggest game on our, the biggest European game on our soil. In well, like, could you say? Be, could you look prior to Dundalk's uh, games against Zenit and Alkmaar in Dublin? I mean, it's the big, it's the biggest Rovers one since 2011. Um, so uh, I think it's the biggest. Yeah. Do you think so? Okay. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Okay, once once you said that, I, once you said that, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, ah, it's cruel, isn't it? I mean, and like even also, Rovers miss out on so much money. You know, they would have uh, they would have obviously you know got a full house of Tala, and then they also under this weird the weird uh, rejigging of the rules, they don't get any TV money. They only get to sell the TV money, get the TV rights for Ireland. So that's essentially whatever RTE or another broadcaster wish to pay for pay them. AC Milan get the rights to show the game. Uh, everywhere in the world, bar Ireland, uh, that's supposedly to compensate the lack of home advantage. I think that that is uh, that was uh, an insufficiently uh, nuanced ruling, I think, from UEFA. So it's really unfortunate for Rovers. Uh, so it's yeah, it's just a real pity, you know. But great opportunity for um, for the Rovers players and Rovers management, obviously. And if uh, there may also be value in Rovers selling the TV rights to the scrap for media accreditation to that game, because it's going to be high. <laughs> Extremely limited uh, and very much in demand. Definitely to the highest bidder. Um, once they don't sell the TV rights to Johnny Ward um, and his Instagram account, I think I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> Is that where you watch? That's where I, that's where I watch. As well. I watch I watch the the Bose the Bose um, Fair Aber stream. That was all right. I mean, I, I was I was okay. That keep my tenor bows. I don't mind. But I was going to get the Rovers stream afterwards, and I like, so. Uh, much wailing and gnashing of teeth, so I figured maybe I should give it a skip. And then, uh, thankfully, the, gr- the great work of Johnny Ward obviously meant uh, meant we saw meant we saw the uh, saw the penalty. <laughs> great stuff! Thanks very much for uh, for joining us tonight, Kevin. Super. Cheers. The Backpage Football Podcast. Salah!